can you imagine if you were the only Christian in your community? I, I don't mean one of a few. I mean the only one. Imagine a town of about 100,000. That's more than a town, isn't it? A city of 100,000 or so. And as far as you know, you are the only Christian. There's no church around. There are no gatherings of Christians. You're the only one. That was the experience of Aisha, who lives in Central Asia. Elliot Clark talks about her in his book, Evangelism as Exiles. The Clarks were missionaries in Central Asia, and they came to find, find out, they, they found out about Aisha through a, a mutual acquaintance. They lived in a community that was some ways away, maybe a couple hours drive, but they began to connect with her. Not sure how she was converted. Uh, Elliot never tells that story, but in her community, she was the only Christian, and she was hungry for fellowship and for feeding. And Clark says as she lived there without any church, much, much less a single Christian friend. Not only was she alone spiritually, but also her older children were in college and away, and her husband was incarcerated. So they began to visit her, and sometimes she would visit them, riding a, a bus over mountain passes. And Clark says, as much as possible, I tried to encourage Aisha while trying to grasp what life as a disciple of Christ would look like when there is no possibility for believing community. If anyone ever was a Christian exile, she was. And the result, as you might imagine, was threadbare faith for her. A little bit later, they received an invitation from her for the Clarks to bring their family. They had young children. They wanted to be, uh, Aisha wanted to host them. Her husband had, been got, had gotten out of jail. And she wanted them to meet him. They were uncertain about whether they should accept, whether they should go and stay with this family. They didn't know that man. They had young girls. They were uncertain about it. But they did go. And they began to get to know Metin. And they treated him with respect as a man that was made in the image of God. Though indeed he was a convicted felon. They said to his parents, we didn't know what to do. What, if, what are the appropriate risks to your family when trying to bring the gospel to a city or just one person? But their visit went well. They had accepted. And thankfully, it's impossible for us to imagine being the only Christian here in the Bible Belt. Even if you were go, to go to a less church less Christian place in our country like the Northeast or the Northwest, you could still expect there would be other followers of Christ somewhere that you could meet. And we're not missionaries like the Clarks, and yet we are in this world. We are in the community that the Lord's placed us in, and there are relationships all around us. And so last time we were in First Peter, Remembering that this is a larger section as Peter is talking about how Christians are to relate to the world as exiles. 
starting back in chapter 2 in the passage that Jacob preached last time, his theme was that as Christians, we are to value love and truth in our relationships with each other and the world. And Peter's going to take us deeper into our witness with the world. Particularly a world that does not value the things we value, does not uphold the things that we uphold, does not follow the command that Christ gives us. Well, here's my theme this morning. Because we have a living hope, we should have a living witness. Because we have a living hope, Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 1, then we should have a living witness. And I want to talk about three aspects of that living witness. The perspective of eternity, a posture of humility, and the pattern of adversity. So first, the perspective of eternity. Now, Peter assumes that these Christians will have a witness in the world by virtue of being born again. That's what Peter says. You are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. So you're born again to this, and you're alive to this, and so therefore you're going to have a witness in the world that you live in, whether you realize it or not. And because you follow Christ, if you do, you are going to be marked by the world. They're not always going to appreciate your following of Christ. They're not going to always appreciate the morality that you stand for or that you uphold. Unless you're trying to be one of those secret agent Christians. You know, no one knows that you're actually a Christian. You don't talk about it. You don't mention it. That If they ask about it, you demur. demur. Uh, yeah, 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 you go to church sometimes. We're not called to be that. And there is no actual secret agent Christians, though certainly for those who live in places of steep and harsh persecution, you may need to be careful. But that's not where we live. And yet we feel all of the same temptations that every believer fear has. We fear the world around us, how they can harm us, the damage that they can do to our careers. We feel insecure about our place and uncertain about what the world will bring us. And certainly, as you look into this year ahead, there's uncertainty, isn't there? It's an election year. I don't know about y'all, but those just don't bring a lot of great joy for me as a pastor. And everything that you see on the news and the things that are going on in the world, and there just increases uncertainty. And when you feel that, then you might have a temptation to push the mute button on your faith because it's risky and it's uncertain. Peter started this section in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, saying, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And then verse 12, he goes on to say, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that they, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And this sort of picks up this 
concept of living out your faith in relationship to a pagan world. And so Paul, not Paul, Peter, Paul writes a lot of stuff in the New Testament. I, Peter says, ask a rhetorical question, verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, I think we can say generally, let's say you say, you know, God created this world. I want to be good steward of it. And so I'm going to go along the parkway. I don't recommend this, by the way. But I'm going to pick up trash. I'm going to pick up litter because I want to be a good steward of God's creation. Generally, I think people are not going to assault you for doing that good. You can generally expect the world. They may not cheer you. They may not help you. But if you're doing good in the world because of your relationship with Christ, you're probably going to be okay in most cases. Our living hope becomes a living witness, and yet persecution is real, and there are times it doesn't matter how much good you do. Over the Christmas holidays, over 140 Nigerian Christians were killed by Muslim extremists in their own country. Guess what? The people who murdered those Christians don't care about the good that they did in their country if they did any. And I assume they did. They don't care. That is true. And that does happen. Your very existence as a follower of Christ is a threat to the human self-autonomy project that everybody holds dear. And that must be protected at all costs. And so Peter gives a word of encouragement in verse 14. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. We may suffer for the Lord's sake, but there is the promise and perspective, perspective of eternity for us to remember. And that is that the Lord is the one that we fear. And because we fear and worship him, we trust in his provision for us. For today and for eternity. And what Peter is doing is he's quoting from Isaiah 8.12, or at least alluding to it, 8.12 and 13. And we read, and this he's quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, but I'll read our English translation. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they for fear, nor be in dread. For the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. That was a word to King Ahaz and to the Israelites who were fearing the Assyrians. They had a fear of the world that was greater than their fear of the Lord. And Isaiah is saying, don't fear the world, fear the Lord. Look to him more than you look to anything else. So, but even if you should suffer... And that suffering does happen at times. And it is real. It happened to three young Hebrew men, Shadrach, 
Meshach and Abednego, or Rakshak and Benny, if you know the Veggie Tales. It's from Daniel chapter 3. They had been given an ultimatum by King Nebuchadnezzar to worship him, to worship what he set up. And they said, you know, there's only one God. We're not going to worship you or anything you tell us to worship. And so, whatever comes may come. In fact, they said something similar to what Peter says here, but even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, they answered the king, Daniel chapter 3, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Even if our God doesn't rescue here, us here, we're going to worship him because he's the one that we fear above all. We don't fear and we aren't troubled, not because the things of this world aren't difficult or fear-inducing, but because the follower of Christ has a witness that we serve the Lord of lords and King of kings. And he has given us the promise of eternity to hold us and keep us through this world. So he's our greatest fear and our ultimate hope in this world and the one to come. And I like the way the Gospel Transformation Bible puts it. Uh, We await an eternal glory that will make the hardships of this life Though genuinely painful, ultimately have the significance of a scratch on the penny of a millionaire. I love that image. These things are painful. And yet ultimately, in light of glory, in light of God's eternity that he's given to us because of Jesus, it is but a scratch on a penny of a millionaire. He's already promised his blessing to us through Christ. And so we have to work to remember that perspective. When we go out into the world, we need to remind ourselves. That's why worship is so important for us to come into week to week. I know there's illness and there's travel and there's different circumstances that happens. But as much as we're able, we need to remind ourselves and remember The promise of eternity and the perspective of it. And the Lord did rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from that fiery furnace, showing up in an unexpected way. And it led to great praise of God. But even if he had not, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were going to praise the Lord anyway. And because we are rescued from the fire of hell that we deserve. We set the perspective of eternity before us as we go out into the world with our living witness. And it's not just that we should have that perspective as we seek to have a living witness because we have that living hope. We also want to keep, this is my second point, a posture of humility. 
Jesus came to free us and raise us to new life, and we become his witnesses in this world, his ambassadors, his followers, his emissaries. And Peter goes on to say in verse 15, as he continues that sentence that is pulling from Isaiah 8, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so the first part of this posture of humility starts with our beliefs, what we believe about Christ. You know what? You're not the Savior. You're not your own Savior, nor are you anyone else's, but Christ is the Savior, and we honor Him as holy, just as the Lord was honored as holy in the Old Testament, and we were commanded to do so, we do the same with Christ, because He is our God, come in the flesh for us. And verse 18 makes clear that Jesus is the sinless substitute for us. And so we hold him in the same esteem as we do God the Father. And who you who are you that the Lord should give you new life? Think about that question. Who are you that God would give you a living hope, would raise you to new life? Did you earn it? Do you deserve it? Uh, if your answer to those questions are yes, then please talk to me after the service. I'd love to hear from you. I think generally we would say, no, I, don't, I didn't earn my salvation. I, I don't deserve it. That's actually the testimony of a follower of Christ. And so that provokes humility. It starts with our beliefs in who Christ is and what he's done for ourselves. But it continues with our willingness to be a witness for the Lord. Now, you don't need a degree in theology to be a witness for the Lord. You don't need to be a missionary. You don't need to have any sort of particular skills. But you do need to be willing. And that requires humility on our part. It means being willing to seek question, answers to questions that we have and that others have. This word defense in the ESV, some translations have it as to have an answer, but that's not quite strong enough because the word defense here is often used in a legal setting. Like, you've been hauled into court, and you're being questioned because of your belief in Christ. Our Scott Clark, who's a professor and pastor, says the scenario that Peter has in mind was not theoretical. About the very same time that he's writing, Christians in Rome were undergoing a violent, horrible persecution at the hands of a madman. Caesar Nero, or just Nero. Peter and other Christians knew that before the soldiers laid their hands upon a Christian and hauled him or her before the authorities, one must resolve in their minds some truly basic questions. Who am I? What is my only comfort in life and in death? Am I prepared to suffer and, if necessary, to die for Christ who gave himself for me. Paul experienced that, not first before Nero, although that time did come, but first before King Agrippa, 
or Agrippa II. And we read his words before, at least some of those words before him, his defense before Agrippa in Acts 26, where he gives his testimony. He provides a witness to Christ, and he says, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hoped to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And then later in the chapter, verse 24, he says, And he was saying these things in his defense. There's that word. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Great learning is driving you out of your mind. That's how they viewed Paul, being out of his mind. That's how the world will view you at times, as being out of your mind. When you uphold a consistent Christian ethic of life, or morality, or sexuality, or anything else that's going on in this world, you will be considered out of your mind. And ultimately, Paul would be martyred under Nero as he went to Rome. Now, it's unlikely that you're going to be arrested or tried. But you can be prepared to be a living witness when you are tried in the court of public opinion. You can expect that. And then lastly, his posture of humility isn't just worked out in what you believe or your willingness but also in the ways that you carry yourself in this world. You see at the end of verse 15 there, do it with gentleness and respect. Of course, gentleness is one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We see that in Christ himself. Wouldn't you say that Jesus was gentle? Now, he could speak sternly and forcefully with those who were evil, and those who twisted the word of God. But those with those who were hurting, those who had genuine questions, those who had doubts, those who were beat down by their sin and the sins of others, he treated with great gentleness and compassion. And then, not only gentleness, which is similar to the word meek or meekness, which is a reflection of our humility, Respect, respect to all. That's what Peter's been talking about. You respect the authorities and you respect the people that the Lord's placed in your life. You respect the people you're related to. You show respect to all, which is demonstrated in your words and your actions. That word respect is actually the word that's, uh, that w- could be translated as fear. Phobia. That is to say, have the right fear of the people around you. Fear the Lord, ultimately, but show respect to those who are in your life. Because how you treat others matters to your witness. I don't know about you, but I generally don't like to be yelled at. Just in, just in general, I tend to want to walk away. And at the University of Georgia, in the center of campus at the Tate Center, and some of you may remember, I've told you about this fellow before, there's what's called the free speech platform, where anybody could stand up, I don't know if it's still there, but anybody could stand up and they could say anything they wanted, 
anything crazy, anything wild, anything whatever. They could stand there, and most we mostly just walked by, right, because we had classes to get to. But on a regular basis, Brother Jed, and that was what, his, what he went by, would come. And you know what he would do? He would stand on that platform, and he would walk, watch young men and young women walk by, and he would call those young women names that I will not say in this sermon. He didn't know them. And I remember one of our friends, a classmate of Lydia's who was not a follower of Christ, was befuddled because she walked around in her own words, I think, like a school teacher. Elementary school teacher, even better. Hey, that's the way she dressed. She was not dressed in a lascivious fashion. She wasn't trying to attract attention to herself. And yet, Brother Jed, when she walked by, yelled at her and called her a horrible name. What do you think that did to the cause of Christ as we sought to witness to her? It certainly didn't help. Not only did Brother Jed do that, not showing gentleness or respect, he also claimed that he hadn't sinned in some time. That he had overcome his sin. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I, that doesn't seem quite biblical, and it certainly does not comport with a posture of humility in Christ Jesus. What is your motivation for your witness? I think for Brother Jed, it was to be right and to be persecuted, because then he could go back into his wherever, his, I don't know, his hole. Uh, he could go back wherever he came from and tell people, well, they hated me. Well, yeah, you're a jerk. Of course people hated you. Don't be Brother Jed, please. What's your motivation for your witness? Is it to be right? Is it to be vindicated? Or is it to point someone to Christ? Ask the Lord to make you a servant to others in service of your witness and humility for those who the Lord uses to make his grace and his light known. You want to increase your humility? Here's, your, here's your, your orders for today from the pastor. Do something hard and out of your comfort zone. Walk over to a neighbor's house and ask them how they're doing and how you can serve them because you love Jesus. You don't have to do it in those words. Invite someone to church. Ask someone what they're struggling with. Tell someone about what you learned in church or a song that you sang or a word that encouraged you from a fellow church member. You know what will increase your humility? Doing something hard because you're going to have to step out of your comfort zone and depend upon the Lord. It's not easy, but the Lord calls us to do it. And finally, our, we have a living, because we have a living hope, we should have a living witness that recognizes the pattern of adversity. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. He said that on the night he was betrayed. And then a little bit later, he said, I have said these things to you that in me you have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. 
but take heart, I have overcome the world. Here's the pattern of adversity. It's that we will experience difficulty in this world, but the Lord will use it in service of his will. And as the followers of Christ were to make their defense of their living hope, then they would be able to rest in the Lord's sovereign will. That's where we need to be. Look at verses 16 and 17. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. It is better for us to be slandered for our service in the Lord and in an uncompromising faith that proclaims Jesus as Lord than for us to be a stumbling block to someone else's faith. And I think a lot about that a lot as a pastor. But that's for all of us. But I, I read something the other day from Kate Shelnut. She covers the news for Christianity Today, that publication. She says, not every crime makes the news and not every suspect will be identified by their profession in a story. But as I see every day in my news feeds, if you are a pastor allegedly involved in any sort of wrongdoing, the headline will say pastor. And then she linked a story. And here was the headline. North Carolina pastor arrested after trying to push McDonald's employee's head in deep fryer. Now listen, I don't know what was going on there. I don't know what kind of pastor this is. But it does make me aware that I don't want to be the cause of someone else's adversity or stumbling. Not unless the Lord is using that to bring them to Christ and he's leading me in that. But if I don't want to be a headline, and you don't either, that's for pastors and parishioners alike. We look to the way of Jesus, and Peter's never going to let us get far from the way of Jesus and the work of Jesus. That's what he does in verse 18. And, and Jacob's going to draw our attention to verse 18 again next week as, as he preaches probably one of the hardest passages in First Peter, and it's just the way the cookie crumbles. Uh, but Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. There's the pattern of adversity. Suffering and adversity being used in the will of God. In Christ, it brings us into a relationship with God. But the Lord can use our troubles. He can use our trials to point other people to Christ as well. We don't get to choose another path. We are going to be a living witness. It does not mean we'll all suffer in the same ways, but it reminds us that we don't witness to the Lord's grace and mercy because it's easy, but because it's good and right. And it's the Lord's will to turn our trials and triumphs, our trials into triumphs of his power and mercy. And I'll conclude with this. Elliot Clark, later in his book, shares about Aisha. Some years after our first meeting in our city, our family, now back in the States, I received another message on my phone. This time it was Metten, Aisha's husband. He rejoiced 
to share with me that he had confessed Christ as Lord. And his one request of me was, can you send someone to our city so that I can be baptized? And as he writes, this book was published a year or two ago, he writes, today, two years later, I still receive messages from Metten, only now with pictures from the small church gathering in their home. You see, that's what a living hope looks like. It started in the smallest possible way with Aisha being a living witness to absolutely everyone around her. Let us prayerfully ask the Lord to make us servants in proclaiming the good news of Jesus as we do good and act in righteousness, whatever we may face. But even if we suffer for righteousness' sake, let us be ready to proclaim our great Savior's name. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and this time that we have together. And I pray, Lord, that uh, we wouldn't walk away feeling burdened and guilty and, okay, I got to get out there and, and now the pastor said I got to do. But Lord, let it be organic. Let it be welling up from within us because of what is true and right and good and our remembering how much you have done for us. Use the word and use the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to, to pro provoke our humility and remind us of exactly what Christ has done for us. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And in Hebrews chapter 9, we read and hear, and just as it is appointed for man.